Well, this morning we're continuing our walk through the Old Testament, as we've mentioned in this season of uh, resurrection, the season of Easter, remembering the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelling there, not rushing off quickly, but dwelling on the victory of Christ and doing so as we've been doing by stories in the Old Testament, in this Old Testament series. And we come to uh, this morning, Daniel chapter three. Again, another very familiar story, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's one uh, that makes the children's Bibles. That's how you know. you know it's one of the big stories of the Old Testament uh, because it makes all our children's Bibles. Uh, when you flip through, you can pretty much assure yourself that you will see this story because it is so dramatic. It's such an amazing tale and story of God's faithfulness and of his deliverance. I almost wonder, in fact, if, if that's what I should have titled this whole series of sermons is children's storybooks or uh, uh, texts and sermons. Because these grand texts in there, as we mentioned last week in the story of Jonah, the big, bold, and primary colors of these stories are what are so helpful to children. And of course, even more than that, they're helpful to all of us. We all need the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We all need the story of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. It's just that it's important for us to remember that they are not merely children's stories and that they have deep significance for us as we study and as we hope to see Christ. The reality is it's not just these big stories, these big bold stories that help us to see Christ in the Old Testament. It's just that it's easiest to see him there. But in fact, Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. Of course, in the shadows, Right now, with the clarity that we see when we get to the gospel, but nonetheless, he is there. And it's important for us to read the texts this way. Remember, Jesus says to the Pharisees, when Moses wrote, he wrote of me. Jesus feels confident to take all the words of Moses and say, yeah, the whole thing, not just the big stories, not just the story of Abraham and the ram on Mount Moriah, not just stories like that, not just the Passover, not just the Day of Atonement, but all the story, the whole text, the whole story is about me. And in Luke 24, when he's walking with the disciples after the resurrection on the road to Emmaus, they go through, they scan through the law and the prophets, showing how all these things had to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So even though we're kind of hopping from one mountaintop to the next in terms of these texts, we're looking at the big and grand stories of the Old Testament, I want to make sure that we read these stories in such a way that they become the pattern, that we're building some exegetical muscle memory. So that when we come to any text in the Old Testament, we read it for what it is, a text written to Old Testament saints. But at the same time, we use it then as a lens to help us understand better the time in which Christ came, the time in which we live. Right? We want to see all things through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So, so again, a big dramatic text for us as we come to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe some of you didn't even need me to read the text today. You have it, the picture is so clear in your head. Or perhaps it was good to hear some of those details again, to hear the response of Nebuchadnezzar on both sides of that occasion with his sort of fiery breath and his words about what God will deliver you. You better bow to the end. There is no God like the God of these men. Uh, it's a pretty awesome conversion and a wonderful story. Well, as we come to the text this morning, I want us to consider four things that are surprising about this text, and then maybe challenge and ask, why are they so surprising? 
But when we read this text, uh, and again, it's very hard to come with fresh ears to hear the story because we've heard it so many times. But if we can imagine just reading this text for the first time and hearing it, so many things would surprise us in this text. And again, maybe reading it again gave you a little bit of that experience. But I want us to consider four surprising features of this text and then turn around and ask why. Why are they so surprising? The first surprise, if you will, in the text is what I'm calling the ugliness of living in exile. The ugliness of living in exile. Remember, this story does not take place in Israel. Why are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which are their Babylonian names, why are they in Babylon? Why are they having anything to do with King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, the answer is they've been sent out into exile. Because of the idolatry of Israel, and you know, go read the prophets, prophet after prophet after prophet, coming to the people in Israel, to the kings of Israel, calling them to repent. Why were they so prone to worship the gods of the other nations? Why were they so prone to honor the gods of the other nations? Why were they so prone to turn their backs on Jehovah, their God, the one true God of heaven and earth? Why? That's a great question, and we ought not be hard on them. For again, as John Calvin says, we ourselves are idol factories. What we see in Israel is really just a microcosm of all humanity. We ought not be hard on the Israelites for their idolatry. We ought to be convicted by them in our idolatry. We don't have totem poles and we don't have these little shrines that are obvious for worship. Right? We don't have all these kinds of things, but be careful. Be careful now. Look a little closer. And I won't detail all the potential idolatries in our, in our lives, but I, I think we are wise enough men and women in the Lord Jesus Christ if we pray to ask with honesty about the idols that, that we give into, the things that matter to us so much that they cause us great angst, little indicator for how, I think I get this from Tim Keller, great indicator for where you can find your idols. Ask yourself, what are the things that bring me absolute anxiety, that drive me, that break me in fear? And what are the things that just raise me to absolute anger when they are threatened? And then you're touching. There's a raw nerve there somewhere. And we all have these things. So let's be careful before we get too hard on Israel. But the reality is they, because of their idolatry, were kicked out of the land of Israel and sent out in exile to Babylon. And of course, the story of the exile of Israel is really just another, it's a redo. Again, it's a microcosm of the fall of Adam and the exile from the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam refused to honor the Lord. He refused to obey the Lord. He turned his back on the Lord and looked to the offerings of Satan, if you will, the other gods. And what was the result? Exile. Kicked out from the Garden of Eden. And so in some sense, this is where we all are. This isn't just a historical story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego <clears throat> off in exile away from their homeland. This is a story that we can relate to because we are all in Adam out in exile. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are away from home, not in their homeland, not with their temple, not in the presence of their God, but out in a strange and foreign land. And of all things, a land of idolatry. And this is, in some sense, the irony of it, right? Is that the reason they're kicked out of the land is because of idolatry. And where are they brought into? They're brought into a land of even greater idolatry. And here, I think this relates to what we talked about last week in Romans chapter 1. 
where God's wrath is manifested sometimes, oftentimes in this, you want it, you got it. C.S. Lewis says, there are only two groups of people. There are those who say, thy will be done to God. And there are people to whom God says, thy will be done. Think about that. If it's there are only two groups of people, people who say to God, thy will be done. And people to whom God says, thy will be done. And you get a little bit of that here. Oh, you want idolatry. Okay, I'll send you to a land filled with idolatry. And that's where they go. And frankly, is that not where we all are? We all live in Babylon, right? We're all out in exile. We're all living in that Romans 1 reality where we've been turned over, if you will, to this land of idols. <clears throat> now, what's it like out here? Maybe this helps us get some new eyes to look at our Babylon. Again, America is a great place. Don't get me wrong. In many ways, I, I, I bleed red, white, and blue, right? I'm, I'm patriotic to the core. I love it. But I ought never think that I'm not living in Babylon. I don't care what country of the world I'm living in, right? These cultures of the world are Babylonian-ish. What's life like in Babylon? Well, look at this text. It's kind of rough. It's rough out here. It's a land of enslavement. These idols don't want to play nice with you. These idols are not interested in buddying up with you. These idols want to own you. You will bow when you hear the trumpet blast, when you hear this wonderful symphony music. This is not something that can be flirted with. This is enslavement. This is not a land of peace and contentment, like the Lord just saying, okay, go out into that land and good luck and have it, have it good. No, he, the Lord knows that it's this land that's going to break them. Idolatry breaks us and it's rough and it's enslaving and it's filled with temptations to deeper spiral. When these idols get their claws into you, it tightens the spiral to become a death spiral of idolatry. This is why the call to us is to repent and to turn from these things as they begin to get their claws in us. And it comes with threats. Again, they're not interested in flirting with you. The idolatry of the nations, the idolatry of Babylon, threatens us to obey, and it threatens our obedience to God. It, 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 has, it threatens us away from it, wants to keep our back turned on the Lord and keep our eyes fixed upon it. And here we get this detailed for us, again, in bold, bright, cartoonish almost colors. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is almost a cartoonish character here, and we've got this flaming furnace that's lit up seven times, if you read with that Old Testament lens, you know, seven times just means like the absolute fullest. It's heated to the hottest it can go. So hot that guys are dying as they throw um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire. I mean, it, it, it has this larger than life story, but this is meant to say, look, look, pay attention. This is the ugliness of life in exile. And we have to be careful, though. We don't get wooed to sleep on this, especially in a land where we have had it really so good, where, where generally our culture has not stood in our way in the pursuit of the gospel. But I think many of us, many who are listening, wonder whether or not that run is kind of coming uh, slowly to an end. And who knows? Again, I'm not trying to be a prophet, but I think we need to gear up with stories like this, even to begin to reflect on such things. So the question I have is, are you surprised by this horror? Are you surprised? Now, again, I know we're kind of numb by hearing the story so many times, but are you surprised by the ugliness of Babylon? You ought not be surprised. 
our word of exhortation this morning was from 1 Peter chapter 4. And you ought not be surprised because Peter gives us the command. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm so often surprised. I'm so often surprised when I feel pushback against the church and our culture. I'm like, what the heck? This doesn't happen in America. Or when I hear about saints suffering around the world, oftentimes it does surprise me. But Peter would say, why are you surprised? Why are you surprised when you read this, even in Daniel chapter 3? Peter says, brothers, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. This is, in many ways, what we ought to expect. This should not be a surprise in the text at all. Jesus spoke it very clearly to his disciples, who he knew would also be surprised when he said, hey, they persecuted me, they will persecute you. They hated me, they will hate you. Uh, uh, <clears throat> the the student is not greater than his teacher. This ought not to surprise us. And if we go again back to the Garden of Eden, when God makes his first promise to people there, right? The first gospel in Genesis 3.15, what does he say? He says to Satan, and I will restore enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Enmity, this kind of hostility is something that ought not surprise us. When the gospel comes into a culture, when Christians seek to be faithful, it will not generally be received well. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come and bring faithfulness to the presence of idolatry, it is not received well. So the first unsurprising surprise is the ugliness of exile. The second surprise of the story is the faithfulness of these men. Now, shame in us that this is surprising, but we stand in awe, do we not, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that in the face of this fiery furnace, when everyone is bowing, there's three guys standing up. In the presence of that kind of social pressure and in the face of that kind of threat and in the presence of the king, these men stand. It is amazing. Amazing indeed, their faith is awesome. That sheer refusal, we will not. And then their confidence, for God will deliver us. Oh, wow. Just in the presence of such fear, what would be overwhelming me? Fear, the confidence will deliver us. And then on top of that, and I don't know if you caught this, but it's, I think maybe the thing that I love so much about these guys is the next line in that text, God will deliver us. And then they say, but even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow for our God is the true God. And I'm so convicted by that because these men's confidence did not rest and their trust in the Lord did not rest on immediate deliverance. It was not if, if God doesn't deliver me out of this jam, then maybe he's not real. And I know people who have struggled with this. And don't we all struggle with this in some sense? When we pray for something we're going through, we're going through a very hard time. And we pray to the Lord asking for his deliverance. And sadly, I know people who have not had their prayers answered, really, really big prayers and really, really important prayers and who have walked away from the faith because they say, well, if God would not hear that prayer, that was a good prayer. I was asking for bread and he gave me a stone. But not these guys. That's why the faith of these men is so awesome, right? 
God will deliver us. And even if he doesn't, we will not bow. Our God is the true God. Because they understood something. They understood what Jesus would say years later when Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but division. Now, that doesn't mean ultimately, yes, peace on earth, goodwill to men, right? Ultimately, Jesus comes to bring final reconciliation and peace. But make no mistake about it, as the gospel first comes and when Jesus comes, he did not come to just make nice, nice with everybody. He came to bring truth and he came to bring light into the midst of darkness and darkness hates the light. And these men knew that there was no false pretense on their part. They knew what they were getting into so that they were not surprised when the fiery trial came upon them. And they knew that in fact, God might not deliver them from this moment, but nonetheless, he will deliver. He will give ultimate deliverance. We just shared with our, our students here at Chapel Field, we do discipleship groups where we have just 10 students with each teacher uh, every Tuesday for prayer and some scripture and so forth. And the passage of scripture that we used this past week was 2 Timothy 2, where Paul gives three metaphors for the Christian in the Christian life, the soldier, the farmer, and the athlete. And these men understood what Paul says about the soldier. He says, suffer hardship with me, Paul says, like a good soldier. A good soldier is focused, he says, on his command to please his commanding officer, and he does not get himself entangled in civilian affairs. That was what was on my mind as I was thinking about these three men today. Because, you know, so often you and I are concerned about life and we're concerned about our work and we're concerned about how we're going to get through this and what's the world going to look like on the other side of coronavirus. And we're so troubled with all these things that are buzzing around our head like bees. But a good soldier doesn't get entangled in civilian affairs. People who aren't in the battle can worry about all that stuff. But the good soldier's got to fix his eyes on the hill. He's got to take that hill. I can't be worried about all these other things. When I'm back in my civvies, when I'm in my civilian clothes, I can worry about those things. But a good soldier has his eye on the prize. I got to take that hill. And yeah, it may cost me my life. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they got that. So does their faith surprise us? If it does, I'll hold myself here. If it surprises me, then it is to my shame. It's to my shame because, again, Peter, in 1 Peter 4, in the text that we read for our word of exhortation, it says, do not be surprised when the fire of child comes upon you, but in as much as you suffer with Christ, rejoice. Blessed are you. <laughs> I, I, that, that's, that's so convicting to me. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, at the end of the Beatitudes, blessed are you when men curse you and persecute you for my sake. And then he gives this, he says, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. <laughs> that's, that's rough. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Shame on me that I'm so surprised at the awesome faith of these men that my mind goes to. And if you've been through any of my revelation stuff, my class on revelation, uh, I go to the, the faith of the martyr Polycarp in the second century uh, uh, AD. <clears throat> um, and uh, here, here's what, uh, here's his prayer. Polycarp is being led to martyrdom and uh, he's finally arrested. He's an old man. He's maybe 90 years old and he's being brought to the flames, a fiery trial. And as Polycarp goes to the flames, refusing to give in to the pressure of those around him that are calling him, much like Nebuchadnezzar, to bow, to deny the Lord his God, 
Polycarp refuses and said, I will not now dishonor the God who has been faithful to me for these past 86 years or thereabout. And as they put him on the post to execute him and burn him in the flames, Polycarp prays this prayer. Father of your beloved son, and he's saying this in the presence of the amphitheater. People are gathered for the big event, the execution of this man. And he belts out this prayer. Father of your beloved son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, I bless you that you have counted me worthy of, of this day and hour that I might be in the number of the martyrs. Among these, may I be received before you today in a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you beforehand prepared and revealed. Wherefore, I praise you for everything. I bless you. I glorify you through the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom with him in the Holy Spirit be glory to you both now and for ages to come. There's a man who would not have been surprised by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith, but who took it up and said, this is the faith that we're called to. And I thank you, O oh Lord, that you found me worthy to go through this suffering. We're convicted, but nonetheless, we ought to strive by God's grace. The third surprise, unsurprising surprise, if you will, is the safety of the men, the deliverance of the men. There they are in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar is sitting from a safe distance, and he grabs the boys. He said, boys, I thought I told you to throw three men in there. And they say, sir, king, may the king live forever. Uh, king, we, we, we did. And he says, well, how come there's four in there? And not only that, but they're walking around. And frankly, this fourth guy, he looks like a son of God. He's just glowing. He's, it's amazing. I don't know what he meant by that, but whatever he sees must be amazing. The men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are in the fire, and they are unsinged. In this case, their faith is immediately rewarded. Now, again, we've already confessed, it's important to not take from this text that if you have, if you have genuine and sincere faith, then don't worry. God will not let you go into that fire. God will not let you be hurt. Polycarp died. He was burned in the flames. The point of this text is not, if you could just muster up enough strength, then bad things will not happen to you. You will be physically bulletproof. That is not the point of this text. But the point of this text is to offer you an encouraging confirmation of your ultimate deliverance, right? That, in fact, God is the God who delivers his people. That he will not let them down. They will be delivered. Even if he does not, we won't bow because these men knew that God ultimately would deliver them. If not in this life, then in the next and this is the confidence that we have to have. If we view this life as the final end of the timeline, like whatever deliverance God is going to give has to fit within the parameters of my lifetime, then we're all going to be disappointed because we all die. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew the parameters, the boundaries of because even if he doesn't do it here, my God, raise us from the dead. Wasn't this Abraham's faith also? No boy not coming back. And the author of Hebrews tells us, because Abraham knew that if needs be, God could raise him from the dead. In the immediate scripture, 
circumstances. And we all know sometimes God does deliver us in our immediate circumstances. We probably all have testimony. But the point of this test is not or when you're in your prayer close, the point of this text is something much deeper, right? And I think we all know that. I, I the to my mind in this case, the hymn, How Fit the Lines from How Firm a Foundation. Do you remember the beautiful lines to that hymn? Way shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames will not harm thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The point of this is the Lord is with you and will see you through the fiery trial, whether or not it actually brings physical harm, whether it actually ends in death. The point of this story can ultimately do us no final harm. The fires that God allows us to go through as his faithful servants are fires that consume our dross. They sharpen us. They, they purify us. Take away the impurities. These things have to get stripped away as I'm forced to trust in him and him only. And thy goal to refine. Remember those beautiful words we considered a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? These light and momentary afflictions are working for you an eternal weight of glory. Don't fear the flames. Don't fear the trials. They are working for you by God's grace, purifying, refining, and working for you an eternal weight of glory. Are we surprised by their deliverance? <laughs> Let us not be surprised. Look at the cross. Look at the cross of the Lord. Have you seen the resurrection? Why are we surprised at the deliverance of God? Why are we not confident in the deliverance of our God? You know the ending of the game. You know the score at the end of the game. Indeed, we win. I don't care what happens this inning. Ultimately, the game is won. Fourth and finally, the fourth unsurprising surprise is the company of the men. Of course, they're in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar sees them. But then there's another guy in there. There's a fourth guy, one like a son of man. And again, the point of the story, as we've been thinking about in all these Old Testament stories, the point of the story is not merely, hey, have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, there is no question that they are a model for us, and they're a wonderful model. And yes, you should have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That is true. But as we've said in all these texts, if we end it there, then all this text becomes is another burden upon us. You know, be strong like they were. It's an important thing, and you ought to be. But the point of this text is essentially who is with you in the flames? Who is with you in your trials? Are you alone? If you are alone, I don't care how strong you are, there is no deliverance. I don't care how strong you are. You don't beat death. The point of the story is not just be strong. The point of the story is who's with you. Just like the story of the, the ship and the sea, you know, the, the storm. Who's in your boat? If Christ is in your boat, what do you have to fear? I don't care how scary it gets. I don't care if it ends in death. There's nothing to fear. But if Christ is not in our boat, 
If Christ is not with us in our trials, then they will consume. If Christ is with us, we may have supreme and unshakable confidence. And in an Old Testament way, the Lord Jesus Christ was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they knew it. I know they were far from land. They're out here in exile, just like you and I. And they might not be by the temple, and it may not be obvious that God is in their midst, but they knew, I don't care where I go, God is with me. I'm reminded of the beautiful Psalm, Psalm 23. And in Psalm 23, and I think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the spirit of David in Psalm 23. Remember how Psalm 23 goes? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And notice the way he speaks here. He speaks in the third person, like, like the psalm that David is talking to us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside the still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. See, he does this. He does this as if he's talking to us. He's saying, hey, guys, the Lord's my shepherd. And here's what he does for me. He makes me lay down here and he feeds me this way. But then when he turns and in his mind starts thinking about going through the valley of the shadow of death, go look at the psalm. The, the, the direction of the psalm changes. He's no longer talking to us. He shifts and he's talking to God, right? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is with me. No, he says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. It's like he's telling us about God, but then as his mind starts to think about the trials he's been through and the great struggles he's with, he forgets us. Who are you? All of a sudden, he's locked in on God, and it's, you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they come for me. You prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. I want to dwell in your house forever. <laughs> this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that Old Testament acknowledgement that God is with them even in the valley of the shadow of death. Even in exile, their God was with them, and our God is with us. Isn't this the awesome reality of who our God is? Our God is the God who goes with us, even into exile. Was this not the point of the incarnation? Is not the incarnation God coming with us to Babylon? God coming to dwell with us in Babylon? God, the perfect God, entering the filth of this world and dwelling in this idolatrous land of Babylon? Is that not the point of the incarnation? Our God is a God who's with us in Babylon. And our God is a God who is with us even in the flames. Is that not the point of the cross? There on the cross, Jesus Christ is bearing our flames. There on the cross, he's bearing our judgment. Our God, our king, is the king with feet of burnished bronze. That was the title I chose for this sermon. If you happen to look at it, you're probably like, what, what title is that? The king with bronze feet is what I titled the sermon. But I take it from the book of Revelation. You know how I love the book of Revelation. It's so edifying. But in Revelation chapter one, we get a vision of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a picture of him and his ascension. There's all these pictures of his glory. But the one that I'm touching on here and that moves me so much is that his feet were of burnished bronze, bronze refined by the furnace. Yes, yes. Ours is a king whose feet have been refined by the furnace. That is to say, our king is the king who is in the flames. 
our king is a king who is in the fire. He's been in the fire with us. He's been in the fire for us. There is no king like this. Are you surprised? Are you surprised to see God, the son of God, in the fiery furnace? Are you surprised to see him at Golgotha and on Calvary? This is our king, and there is no other king like this. And it's this king who, after he goes through the fire, and after he dies and is buried and is raised from the dead and is invested with all authority on heaven and earth, in Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, he sends his disciples out now. He sends us, the church, out. And he says, now, guys, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go into all nations, making disciples of them. And you and I know full well what this is going to cost those men and what it's going to cost many in the church throughout the ages. They're going to, it's going to cost them their lives. He's sending them out into the flames. But then he says to them, and he ends, the gospel of Matthew ends this way, and he ends his great commission with this, and lo, I am with you. Always, always, even to the end of the age. Ours is a God who is with us in our exile, in the flames. And it's because of him and him alone that ultimately the flames will not hurt us. We will come out of every trial ultimately unsinged if he is with us. And ours is the king with feet of burnished bronze, refined in the fiery furnace, so that in him we might have victory. And it is he who says to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we thank you. There is no God like you, Jehovah. <laughs> All other would be gods sit upon their perch in the high places. But ours is a God who comes to dwell with his people. Ours is a God who comes to get his hands dirty. Ours is a God who comes to dwell with us right in the flames, who comes to meet us in our Babylon and in our exile, that he might redeem us, that he might protect us, that he might deliver us. Ours is a king with feet of bronze. We thank you. And we are convicted. We pray that you would forgive us for our lack of faith. Forgive us for being overwhelmed by the wind and the waves and the fire that swirls around us and the threats and the social pressure to which we so easily cave. Forgive us for that, we pray. And again, deliver us through the finished work of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.